Welcome to a special edition of the Portically Yours podcast. I'm Yvonne Boos. For the past few years, this segment has showcased poems from Northern Illinois writers and a few from other states. Portically Yours has given you glances of the poets, but it doesn't allow you to hear the depth of these artists. This special segment serves as a backdrop for this weekly series. This month's featured poet is Carol Obertobessing. Obertobessing grew up in Union City, New Jersey. She served on the board of the Woodstock Folk Festival for decades. On this episode, she talks about her inspirations and what led her to Illinois. So I want to start by asking about your early years in writing. So I know you said you write poetry, you write songs, and you take photography. So you're overall creative. When did that start? When were you pinched by the, or I would say, um, bit by the creative bug? Well, my very first memory is going to the see the movie There's No Business Like Show Business with my mother, and I remember sitting in her lap. And there are no photographs of that, so that has to be an actual memory. It's not like there are many things that we remember that come from the photos our family has shown us, but this has to be a real experience. And so that's where my love of music and dance began. And then my mother was very interested in poetry and literature, so she used to read to me, and one of the first books I remember having is a book of poetry. I think it was called The Golden Book of Poetry. And then there was a, an anthology by Lewis Untermeyer that was another one of my early poetry books. And then when I was probably about 12 years old, my mother took me to see W.H. Auden at Hunter College in New York. I grew up in New Jersey outside of New York. And his poetry is, to this day, very difficult. But she really wanted me to see him. She was a great admirer of his poetry. And he was very kind to me. I remember going up to him. And I was probably the youngest person in the audience. And uh, it was just a wonderful experience. So that's how it began, was really through my mother and English was always my favorite subject in school. And I'm not sure whether that um, is part of what created my interest in writing and in literature in general, or whether um, it just reinforced an interest that was already there. Now tell me what you mean when you say his poetry was very difficult. Um, some of it's abstract and some of it is very dense. Um, and there are references in it. It's the kind of poetry where, particularly as a 12-year-old, I had to look up some words. <laughs> Whereas, uh, contrast that to Robert Frost, whose poetry was very understandable, very accessible. And I remember my mother having me sit with her during the 19... Well, it would have been 1961 inauguration of John F. Kennedy and Robert Frost read a poem at that. And that's another memory that sticks in my mind. So about how old were you when you started writing? I probably wrote something in grammar school, but the first time I really remember seriously writing a poem was in high school. And a friend and I started a literary journal called The Vanguard for our high school in Union City, New Jersey. And I wrote poems for that. So that was the first time I did it. And frankly, 
After that, I didn't write poems again until the pandemic started. I had two very influential English teachers in high school, and one steered us to the creative side, and the faculty member who also worked with us on the Vanguard also was more into the creative side. And so in high school, that was really encouraged. And then as I got older in high school, another English teacher who was more into journalism became a major influence, a mentor for me, and after graduation, actually a friend as well. And she was much more into reporting and the business style of writing. And so for most of my career, I worked in public TV and radio for much of my career. And most of that time was devoted to writing reports and business letters, public speaking, things like that, that did not call for a creative impulse or a poem. Although in later years, I did start adding poems to my public speaking. That was probably the first time I went back to poetry in a serious way was reading a poem by somebody else. I remember introducing somebody who is very involved in many things. And there's a great poem called To Be of Use by Marge Piercy. And I read that poem as part of my introduction of this person because it seemed to amplify a lot of what this person did. So I, I used poetry, but I was not writing my own in those years. I also read poetry, um, it, um, listened to poetry, went to poetry readings. I was living in Boston for many years and I met someone who was a professor at a college there and he introduced me to his writer's series at um, a college there. He also introduced me to Luisa Solano who was the owner of the Grolier Bookshop, uh, one of the few poetry bookshops in the country and it was in Harvard Square, I believe it's still there. Uh, Luisa is no longer there, but uh, someone else was running it the last I knew and they did regular poetry readings. And that got me back into at least listening to poetry and reading it. And then in the 90s, I discovered Mary Oliver and would buy her books as they came out. She's a great influence on my writing, I think, because much of what she wrote about came from nature. And then she took that to move on to, to life lessons and sometimes using nature, not just for itself, there was that part of it, but also as a metaphor. Yeah, and I've wanna, tried to do that in some of my poems. Yeah, I want to step back a moment and talk about your career as a journalist. Tell me more about that. I, I, you know, once in a while, I'll come across a poet who who um, writes um, or who's a journalist. And I think sometimes it all ties together. Um, but tell me about some of the things you did when you worked in public TV. And uh, did you say public radio as well? Public TV and radio, yes. I worked at WGBH. I was their first director of outreach. So I was organizing efforts on issues such as um, some very difficult ones, battered wives, um, Vietnam veterans, uh, child abuse, uh, drug addiction. And then some. my last effort was the most fun. It was the year of the environment, 1990 and involved a lot of community groups, worked with both TV and radio, or WGBH has both 
and they also now have online services as well. So I had to do a lot of public speaking. And as I said, I also did a lot of reports and what I call business writing that's getting the point across. My aim was not to be creative, but to tell people what we were doing and why they should get involved, why it's important to go beyond the television program and to get involved in your community. And I loved working with community members. And then from there, I went on to PBS in the Washington, D.C. area and was the um, associate director of educational services. And we provided print materials and media materials to schools, uh, elementary and secondary schools. And then when I moved to Chicago, I worked at WTTW as a consultant and did um, some work on the New Explorers series with Bill Curtis, uh, who is wonderful to work for and with, and then uh, did some more educational materials for them. And then finally, I was doing some consulting work on end of life healthcare issues and outreach in that area. And that was a, a public radio project. And interestingly, I never set foot in NPR when I was working on that project. Everything was done remotely. We were training staff at public radio stations around the country and doing everything via um, those training sessions and phone, um, email was around at the time. Uh, Zoom wasn't around yet. What year was that? What year was that? Uh, it would have been around 1997 because that was the year my dad died. So I was doing it in, wow. uh, well, I started doing some of the work, uh, the training at public radio stations was 93, 94. And then the end of life healthcare part of it was 96, 97. And when my dad died, it was a bit overwhelming. I decided I did not want to work on end of life healthcare issues anymore. It's, I was I had lived through that myself and uh, with my dad and then a few years later with my mom. Oh, sorry to hear that. Now, what, at what point did you leave that world as far as working for um, the media? There wasn't a distinct time of leaving it. When I was consulting, I would work on and off. And then I became very involved in two organizations. One is the Princeton Club of Chicago, which is a Princeton Alumni Association. And I was president of the club from 2001 to 2003 and have served on the, the board since 1993 and still do. And the other was the Woodstock Folk Festival. And you're somewhat familiar with that. And so I devoted a lot of effort to that and have been the president of that for about a dozen years so those two nonprofit organizations took a lot of my time and it was volunteer work, but I was fortunate because my husband at the time had a good job. And so um, we were able to um, survive on his salary while I did the work that I love to do. Now, um, you said that you came to Chicago and worked for WTTW. Is that the only reason you came to Chicago or did something no. else? Why did that you come the to reason Chicago? I came. It was, <laughs> that was what happened when I got here. No, I came because um, my husband and I met uh, in 1970 during the student strike. 
And we, um, when we graduated from Princeton, we moved to Boston. And then he got a very good job here in Chicago. So in 1989, he moved to Chicago. I wanted to stay on the East Coast. I liked my work in public TV and radio. And I love the East Coast. I love Boston. So uh, we commuted for a number of years, first from Boston, and then I got the job at PBS. And we commuted from there. And at one point, we knew the United flight attendants by first name. And we both thought, well, you know, maybe it's time to think about living in the same place. And he loved his work here. He loved Chicago. So I did move here. And within a year, I grew to love Chicago. And I love showing people around the city. But it was my husband's job that originally got me here. And he he passed in 2011. And that I took a Sorry, year that. thought about whether to move back to the East Coast and decided I'd really put down roots here. And I had some very good friends here and did not want to leave at that point. I still go back. I call it my crutch. I go back, or I used to, since the pandemic started, everything is different, of course, but I used to go back uh, quite a few times a year to either Boston, New York, or Washington. Now, you said you guys used to commute. So were you guys married at the time when he came to Chicago? Oh, yes. Tell me how yeah. that worked. Like, how often did you guys see each other? Um, It was probably two weekends a month. I mean, we talk every day. So we talked every day by phone. But the our dog was living with me. So more often than not, my husband would come to visit me in Alexandria, Virginia. And I loved living in Alexandria. Um, and he often had business on the East Coast, so it was easier for him to travel, whereas my work did not usually involve travel. So it was... Um, more difficult and more expensive for me to travel. But I would come out here about once a month and get to see some of the city. And then after we um, spent a lot of time in the city, he was living in the city, we wanted to see some of the surrounding area. And I had heard that there was an old opera house and courthouse in Woodstock. So we came out here one day and we just happened to park in front of a real estate office and as they say, the rest is history. We were this was about three and a half years into commuting. And we both wanted to be back together. So I made the move here. And so you said that you had stopped writing poetry. You had this career, and then you picked it back up during the pandemic. Can you tell me what happened inside of you that made you want to write poetry again? I think a couple things happened. First of all, at that point, I was not doing a lot of what I referred to as business writing. And I do think that the brain operates in different ways. And when my mind was so focused on first college papers and then business writing, it was not a very creative mind. But when the pandemic shut everything down, Suddenly, all the things I love to do, um, travel, theater, music, movies, were gone. And I was by myself with my dog, but by myself, essentially. 
And there were some pretty dark times in those early months of the pandemic of, of being alone and not knowing when it was going to end. And then it just kept going on. One of the things that helped me through that period was um, a woman in the Chicago cabaret community, Denise McGowan Tracy, who used to run Monday Night Live at Petarino's, started a cocktail hour group. And at first we talked via phone and then we met via Zoom. And one night she said, well, instead of just having the free flowing conversation, why don't we have a topic that we all write something about? And so she assigned a topic and I sat down to write something and a poem came out. It was a humorous poem and it felt really good. I just, the sense of creating something and bringing something bright out of this darkness um, was just so, it was fulfilling, it was life-giving, it was nourishing. And then from there, I started to occasionally write another poem, but it took me several months to do it on an ongoing basis. And then when I got into it, I just felt there were days I would get up and before I would even turn on the computer, I had an urge to write a poem. And I write my poems generally longhand. And I mull something around in my head for a while generally, maybe even write down some phrases or ideas. And then I start putting it on paper. And not until it's mostly done do I transfer it to the computer. And then on the computer, I do most of my refining of it and final editing of it. Wow. So in the moment, I'm going to have you recite a poem. If you have the one that you wrote during the pandemic, that person, that would be lovely. But I wanted to make a I statement. I don't think of, so. Okay. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll do something else. But I, I do want to make- It has a word that is not appropriate on air. The word happened to be in the prompt. I would never have used the word, but because it's part of the prompt, I really can't read that poem. Oh, I understand. But I could read another funny poem that I wrote. Yes, but before you do that, I want to make a comment about something you said. You said with your process of writing poetry, you sometimes jot down ideas before you really get into the poem. And I think that's interesting because I recently, maybe when I say recently in the last two years, learned of a technique where you get a book and I forget the name of this. Now I'm going to have to go look it up. You get a book, any book, and you open it up and you just grab some words. You just write down four or five words. And then you take that and you write a poem based on that. So that's what you, you're you saying you wrote down ideas kind of reminded me of that technique. And I think um, there are a lot of cool ways and cool, cool prompts to help um, poets write. So I like that you pointed that out. Now go ahead and, and read what you have for me. Let's let's see what you have. Okay, I, let me just interject one thing first, since you mentioned the the book and writing poems. I had kept yellow pads to do that for the first couple years. And then when I was, I believe it was at your event in Rockford, somebody said that they used a notebook and on one side of the page, they wrote down their ideas and on the other, then they would start writing the poem. And I thought that was a more efficient way of doing it than a yellow pad. So I've now created a notebook. That's pretty cool. 
something I'm going to put in my tube belt. Just just write out my ideas because a lot of times I feel like I have to start writing the poem and then I move stuff around. But to write the ideas that take off a little pressure. And I imagine that the um that would make the poem more robust because you're you're taking time and letting it marinate and taking your time to get it out. So I like yes, that. The frustrating thing is sometimes the ideas come to me when I'm on the Kennedy Expressway. And I don't take my pen and pen out. Mine and then by the time to... I get home, maybe I've forgotten the idea or oh, yes. exactly the words that I wanted. But oh yes. Mine come to me at three o'clock in the morning. Morning. <laughs> okay, so since the first poem that I wrote was a humorous poem, I will read a hum a different humorous poem okay. right now. And it came to me because several friends had lost their cats. And I was afraid, I wanted to write something to recognize their love of their cats. But I was afraid that if I wrote a serious poem, it would come out um, perhaps overly sentimental. And so I chose to do it with humor. So this is called To All Cat Lovers with Love, with apologies to Edward Lear. Said the owl to the pussycat, Come ride in my catamaran, where you'll find all the fish you can catch. I will take you to Rome for the catacombs, to all countries Catalan, then on to Qatar and Kathmandu. These travels require no catechism. They will not fit any category. They may make you catatonic and are surely cathartic. My love for you is beyond any catalog. Now tell me, what did you do to come up with those words? Did you look up words that begin with C-A-T or did they just come to you and in, in, from your brain to the page? Because I imagine if I was to try to write a poem like that, I would probably get out a dictionary or a thesaurus or something to kind of help me um, with words that sound alike like that. So what was your process for writing that poem? I like to challenge my brain. So I usually write down all the words that I can think of. If there's a concept that I want to get across and I haven't come up with the right word, then I might resort to a thesaurus to see if there's some other word that would work there. But in this particular case, I think I probably came up with all of these. Now and there are some words that afterwards I thought should have been in there and aren't like cataclysm. Well, it's not too late. You can still add it in. <laughs> That's the beauty. That's the beauty of poetry. You can change it. Even if you published it, you can update it and revise it however many times you want. Now you talked about um, Mary Oliver and I know she has like a poetry um, handbook. What is it about her writing that intrigues you? I think it's mostly because nature inspires me. It inspires me to think, to feel, to act, to write. And her poetry has so much nature in it. But then she almost always takes it a step further. So that's that's the appeal of her poetry. All right. So I want to... And I, I have a poem that I think is in that category of being inspired by nature, but then taking us a step beyond that. And it happens to be my favorite poem. I don't know if we're supposed to have favorites of our poems, but 
this is one of mine. Okay. And it was, it's interesting how this one was inspired. So one Saturday night in November of 2021, I listened to a friend of mine singing the song, Sailing Down My Golden River, the Pete Seeger song. And on the following night, I attended a virtual concert with one of my favorite folk music performers, Bill Staines, and he sang his song, River, which has been recorded by many other people and is probably his best known and best loved song. That night turned out to be his final singing of that song, his final concert. He died two weeks later. And so I had started to think about a poem about waterways and rivers because they've always been important to me. I grew up by the Hudson River and then I lived by the ocean in Boston and the Charles River. And then when I moved here, there was Lake Michigan. In Washington, I was by the Potomac. So waterways have been important parts of my life. So putting together um, Bill Stain's song, the song Sailing Down My Golden River and um, my own love of water, I came up with this poem, Waterways of Our Lives, dedicated to Bill Stain's and all who sing about the river journeys of our lives. We sit by the shimmering sea, occasionally looking out, but mostly focusing on the castles we build in the sand. We create the world as we want it to be in these halcyon days, as we travel the waterways of our lives. We fish with our fathers at the babbling brook, watching the line go deep, then pulling it skyward. Our effervescent adolescent lives leap from low to high as we travel the waterways of our lives. We dive into the sylvan spring-fed pond, first swimming laps, then frolicking with delight. We believe hard work calls for hard play as we travel the waterways of our lives. We sit together quietly by the marshy bayou, taking a break from the jazziness of music and life. Our young love is filled with dreams, yet murky, as we travel the waterways of our lives. We sail on the wide open river as it winds toward the sea, navigating the swirling eddy and the dangerous dam. The river hurdles us on life's journey, then calms our restless soul as we travel the waterways of our lives. We gently paddle across the tranquil moonlit lake, synchronizing our motion as the water glistens around us. We are serene on this idyllic love-filled night as we travel the waterways of our lives. We sit by the almost sacred forest stream, traveling strong and steady through these chiaroscuro woods. We reflect on what has been and what is yet to be as we travel the waterways of our lives. We are beckoned by the deep, boundless ocean today, setting sail for unknown lands with fear and awe. Our life mostly fulfilled, yet seeking new wonders as we travel the waterways of our lives. And so life goes from sea to brook to pond, from bayou to river to lake, from stream to ocean, as we travel 
the waterways of our lives. Oh my goodness, I love it. I love how you use water to actually um, talk about the journey that is life and the analogies that you use and just to use the event of going and sitting by the ocean and um, all of those things, I could see how that actually relates to life's ha life having up and downs and things like that. So great job on that, Carol. Thank you. Thank you. Now let's talk about the Woodstock Festival. You said you've been doing that for about a dozen, year a, a dozen years. Um, how'd you get started with that? Well, uh, actually, well, we go back to Bill Staines for that. Uh, after I moved here in 1993, I saw a flyer that about the Woodstock Folk Festival, and it said that Bill Staines was coming to town. Well, I knew Bill from Boston, so I called the number on the flyer and said, if he needs housing, I'm happy to host him. And uh, Amy Beth, the founder of our festival, who was president of the festival at the time, said, no, Bill doesn't need a place to stay, but if you would like if you're interested in folk music, I'd like to meet you. And I said, well, why don't you come over for lunch? She came over for lunch. And at the end of it, she said, would you like to join our board? So I've been on the board of the festival since 1993. So 30 years this year. Well, that's and more that's than a it. dozen, a few dozen. I should <laughs> no, say. it was a dozen was about the number of years I've been president and producer of the festival. And as I said, it was founded in 1986. And I've been with the board since 93. So I've been here for most of the time. It's been in existence and we've featured local, national, international performers. And it's grown from a small local festival to one that draws people from the greater Chicago area and from other states as well. And then we added an open mic stage and a workshop in a children's area. Wow. I know that's how I end. I think that's how I met you doing the story about the Wood Woodstock Festival. That's correct. It and was then... when we were doing Woodstock Wednesdays. Yeah, and then so. A Go short ahead. performance feature we started during the pandemic. Uh, we started it in June or July of 2020, and it ran for 10 months. And we yeah. featured a lot of performers. We tried to focus on performers who had performed at our festival. It was a way of supporting them and thanking them because, as you know, most of their gigs were canceled, and uh, they really appreciated the a platform on which to perform. And now that you talk about it, I remember the Woodstock Wednesdays and I remember where you guys would highlight a certain performer. And I remember doing profiles on a couple of them. Um, now, tell me about your love of music, because we talked about the poetry part and how that um, transitioned throughout the years. Tell me about music and what role did that play in your life? First of all, I think they're interrelated. I think my love of music and my love of poetry are intertwined. Uh, but in terms of music, I, as I said before, my first memory is watching the movie There's No Business Like Show Business with my mom. And then my parents played mostly, uh, my dad loved jazz and my both my parents liked Broadway shows. So I grew up hearing that. And then, of course, I got into rock music and had my little transistor radio, which would come to bed with me at night. And I should mention there are certain teachers in my life. I mentioned some English teachers, but there's a music teacher who is very important, too. And I cannot sing or play an instrument, but I love music. And so there was a year when I wanted to be in the school choir 
And I wouldn't have qualified in terms of singing ability, but I was the only person in the class who knew all the words to all the verses in the songs. And she said to me, um, I want to um, recognize that you love the music and that you know the words to all the songs. So just sing low. And I've often thought back to that and she could have completely destroyed my love of music if she said no, but she didn't. She encouraged me in that way. And last year, I, for years, I tried to find her to thank her. I've tried to thank all the teachers who played a key role in my life. And she was one I had not been able to find. Last year, I heard that she lived in Bayonne, New Jersey, and that um, she was part of a gym that a friend of mine belonged to. So I Googled and I found a number and I called the number and I figured the worst that could happen is somebody hangs up or it's not the right person. And her husband answered and put her on and we talked for about an hour and it was so wonderful to connect with her after all these years and to be able to thank her for continuing my love of music. And then when I met my husband, um, in 1970, during the student strike, we were sent out to Milwaukee for a conference that was part of the anti-war effort. And afterwards, he said he had some friends in Madison, and could we go over there? So we hitchhiked from Milwaukee to Madison. This is 1970, June of 1970. And I met his friends, and they took us to a concert that was on one of the lakes in Madison. And all these people were sitting around singing these folk songs. And I knew a few people like Peter, Paul, and Mary had been on the top 40 charts, but there were so many people I did not know, such as Phil Oaks. I didn't know anything about Phil Oaks. And my husband was also learning to play guitar at the time. So through that concert, through his playing of the guitar, I became familiar with these icons of folk music, Tom Paxton, Odetta, uh, Joan Baez, and then when we moved to Boston, Boston was like the epicenter for folk music in the 70s and 80s. And we would go to Pessim, which was the best known, not the only, but the best known and still going after all these years. It's been over 60 years they've been around. It's 65 now, maybe. And uh, just a wonderful place to hear great music. And so that spurred my interest. And then in 1988, I was invited because of my work at WGBH to be part of a committee that would organize a Phil Oaks song night in Cambridge at the high school there. And Sunny Oaks was the prime force beyond behind that. So I first got to meet Sunny, Phil's sister, and then other people on the committee. And I so enjoyed working on that, um, that when I moved here, the invitation to join the Woodstock Folk Festival board was irresistible. The rest is history. Now, when you talk to that teacher that you tracked down, what type of conversation did you guys have about the Woodstock Festival? I told her that I did this and she she was happy that I was doing something related to music. Um, and as I said, that, that wouldn't have happened perhaps if she had killed my interest in music. Teachers um, have a big impact, you know? Yes 
have a big impact on, on your life. I can think of some examples myself. Now let's talk about the photography. You're sitting with um the backdrop of a picture that you took, which is absolutely lovely. I wish the listeners could see it. I'm still trying to get over the fact that the moon has this cloud effect around it. <laughs> And it looks like it could be like, I see eyes, I see a mouth, I see like the moon is in the middle, like it looks like the stomach. And I see like, it looks like there's like a hat or some some type of, I don't know, antennas coming out. That's what I see as, and I don't know if it's because I'm creative like that, but I see something more than I just the moon. I think it has something to do with it, Yvonne. <laughs> and I did not doctor that photo in any way. I got interested in photography. I think I always, even when I was little, I remember having a fascination with looking at old family photographs, but I never liked being in photographs. So when I was eight years old, my dad recognized my interest in photography and got me a little brownie camera. And then I could take pictures. And if I was taking pictures, I didn't have to be in them. And I, over the years, I think I got fairly good at composing them. And sometimes it would drive my husband a little crazy because I'd be off in the middle of a street getting a photo. And he said, you know, your epitaph is going to be died while taking a photograph. <laughs> now, let's but talk I still love doing that. Let's talk about you pairing your poems with your, your photographs. And I hope I'm saying this right. Um, what's the form? Is it ephrastic where Sometimes people look at a piece of art and then they'll write a poem. Do you do something similar or does the poem come first and then you seek out the photograph? The poem comes first. 95% uh, of the time, the poem comes first. Last year, a friend sent me a very interesting photo and said, might this be inspirational for a poem? And I did write a poem based on his photograph. So I have done that. Uh, but the one I just, I don't know if this is, you can see this at all, but this no, is. No, I don't even I, see you anymore. Yeah. I don't know what happened. You put the paper up. And... <laughs> the poem I just read and I took a, a um, I used a photograph that I had taken over in Michigan. It's a lake in Michigan and there's a path that leads to the water. So to me that conveyed the waterway, but also the concept of a journey in life. And um, so that was the photograph. And then I just had the um, our wonderful Copy Express here who's willing to work with me and make the photo a background for the, for the poem. Now, have you um, had any of your works published? Yes. Well, I'm first of all, let me say I'm extremely grateful to WNIJ for broadcasting some of my poems and um, putting them on Poetically Yours. Um, and I've referred some people to that. Uh, so thank you for that. I really appreciate that because I do write my poems to be heard as much as read. So having them on air is really a treat for me and very important to the poem itself. I did have a poem published in my um, in the Princeton Alumni Weekly. Uh, the poem is called Cicada, and there are many references to Princeton in there because my first experience with cicadas was at Princeton in 1970. And every 17 years when the cicadas came back, I was at 
Princeton reunion. So it was a constant in my life. And then again, I take it a step beyond that and looking at the cicada as some creature from whom we can learn a life lesson. Now, do you have another poem that you would like to share? Um, well, I could share, I don't know if you want me to do one of my really hard hitting poems. Occasionally I write something that's very hard for me to write. And that is also perhaps difficult for people to hear. Uh, but I feel a need to do that. And they often spring from what I'm hearing in the daily news. Hmm. So I've written a couple of those. Go ahead. I would love okay, to hear I something like that. Okay. Um, it's called A Call for Peace, written in response to the daily news. A woman stands beside her silver Chevy on a quiet street, reaching into her purse to retrieve her keys. Suddenly, you jump from the shadows behind her, pushing her to the ground. You speed away. Don't you see... She is the doctor who birthed you. The man slowly climbs the stairs to the platform, heading home from a long, hard day at work. Suddenly, you jump the fare box behind him, pushing him onto the tracks. Don't you see he was the neighbor who caught you when you fell from the tree? The grandmother reads quietly before going to sleep seeking an escape from the cancer she faces. Suddenly, you break through the front door, ending what had been a peaceful, giving life. Don't you see? She is the woman who taught you to draw at school. The student returns home after gender-confirming surgery, learning how to live with a new identity. Suddenly, you appear in the vestibule, beating them until they breathe no more. Don't you see that was your best friend in kindergarten? The refugee leaves a burning home, hurrying toward the border with only a backpack. Suddenly your troops attack the theater where she sheltered, killing her and the child within her body. Don't you see that war destroys all that gives us life? Why don't you see? What monster lurks inside you? Don't you see that hate destroys the hated and the hater? Can't you see that we are connected through our common humanity? Turn from the darkness to the light while there is still time. And we, who see the crime, turning away and losing hope, must continue to bear witness and speak out, not letting the boot of hate kill the flowers, but embracing, teaching, and living love. 
I remember that one when you started. We played that for Poetically Yours. Oh, and then, I'm sorry. I should have read a different one then. No, no, no. You're good. That's good. Um, I, I, You know, if there are people who listen to the podcast and they didn't hear that, they can go back and listen to that poem. But it was funny because there was a certain thing going on um, when that poem, when we aired the poem. Um, and we were like, oh, that's creepy because of what was going on. <laughs> Oh my goodness. So uh, your your poetry is is across the board and I love that. It's not just about one subject. It's it's taking from a lot of things. And I could hear how some of the things you worked as a worked some of the projects you worked on as a journalist as a um as a journalist or working in the media, I can see how you pulled that into your poetry. Yes, so a number of poems. For example, there's another poem I happened to pull out, which is called What is Home? And it was partly inspired by the story um, a couple months ago about the walking man. Um, I assume you are familiar with that story, um, Who the man who, was, um, who walked the streets of Chicago for decades and was living on the streets and then set on fire and badly burned and then died in the fall. Uh, but that was another one. And I, my most recent poem, it's a, it was a tough poem to write and it's, it's a tough poem to read. And I'm guessing it's a tough poem for people to hear, but yes, I do feel that I need to speak out when I hear things in the news about what's happening in our, our city, our country, our world. Yes, so I know this conversation is coming to a close and you've shared some wonderful things with me today, but the poem that you just wrote, I would love to air it on Poetically Yours. So the listeners, if they're listening to the podcast, they have something to look forward to if that's something that you would be willing to do. They can go the in and catch one it. That I wrote? If you can send it to me, I would love to air it on Poetically Yours. Okay, do you want me to read it now? And um, not now because we're coming to a negative call. To, to post on poetically yours. Um, no, send it and I'll I'll see. Now, Carol, is there anything else you'd like to share with me today? Um, I guess what I would like to conclude with perhaps is a thank you, first of all, to you personally, Yvonne, oh, and thank to you. WNIJ for recognizing the importance of poetry and putting this on the air and out there for people to, to hear. And, um, because I think poetry is a way of uh, looking at the world, a way of reflecting on our world, distilling that world, and perhaps even in some cases to changing that world. And again, here's where I come back to the link between poetry and music. I think both of them can be very powerful ways of dealing with our own deep fears, dreams, feelings, um, sharing those with others, and hopefully um, finding a way through things together and finding the beauty and the wonder in life together through poetry and music. Thank you so much. And I'm so glad that you um, you enjoy Poetically Yours and that you're grateful for it. And I am grateful to have so many contributors, you know, pour their their words into the actual program. So I'm thankful for that as well. Now, if people wanted to follow you and find out more about the Woodstock um, Folk Festival, or anything, how can they do that? 
Okay, um, so I guess um, but in terms of the Woodstock Folk Festival, people can reach me at info at woodstockfolkfestival.org. And those come directly to me so then I can separate what's personal and about my poetry from what's related to the festival. So info at woodstockfolkfestival.org. You have a good day and I will talk to you soon. It was lovely talking with you, Yvonne. And again, thank you so much for all that you do. The Woodstock Folk Festival recently held its summer concert, but if you missed it, check out the festival's website for upcoming events. Special thanks to the Nick Monty Trio Band for providing the tunes for this special podcast. For Portically Yours, I'm Yvonne Bruce.